The word of God that we'll be looking at today and studying is Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, through chapter 2, verse 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let us hear the word of the Lord today. Good morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Quinn, and I work with our youth here at Kingsway, and love being a member here, and I love to preach. Um, Perhaps the most epic tale in all of fiction, wait for it, is The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. I didn't know Catherine was going to be here, but that one's for you, Catherine. In the first book of this enchanting story, the one ring gives to the one who wears it a power over all other creatures and is revealed to be in the possession of an unsuspecting person, a halfling, a hobbit, as Tolkien says. There had been hearsay about this one ring for a long time, but its presence would quickly reveal the fate of Middle-earth. And as the scenes unfold, various characters come into contact with the ring and the ring bearer Frodo Baggins. Some local friends join him on this escapade, and so do Strider and Boromir and the rest of the Fellowship of the Ring. I'm sorry if I left out some of your favorite characters. But each of the Fellowship makes sacrifices along the way in the fight against the Dark Lord Sauron. They leave their homes. They lose loved ones. They face monstrous creatures and fight numerous battles. Their joyful courage and perseverance in the face of such difficulty, of danger and adversity, is inspiring and no doubt makes this series one of the all-time great reads in fiction literature. And as I reflect on the passage that we have for us today, I can't help but see parallels between Tolkien's story And what Paul writes about to the Colossians, a mystery revealed, a treasure discovered, a courageous sacrifice on behalf of and in service of the protagonist. And to think that this passage in Colossians was not inspired by the author of the Lord of the Rings, but by the author of life, the Lord of heaven and earth, 
So let's lean in to see what he has revealed for us. Today's passage teaches us this one central idea. In Christ, God has revealed all we need for complete confidence in him. You will notice in your English or Spanish versions that the text is divided with a chapter break, which serves as the division of our two points this morning. And I can hear some quiet cheers in your hearts that this is a two-point message. So again, the main idea here is in Christ, God has revealed all that we need for complete confidence in him. If you've not been with us for these first few weeks in our series on Colossians, Christ above all, some background may be helpful. And for those of us who have been present, I trust that this review will be helpful for us as well. It certainly was for me this week. So where is Paul? Well, if you've studied Colossians, you know that Paul is imprisoned, or more specifically, that he's under house arrest in Rome, waiting for a trial before the Roman emperor Nero. And this was more than 1,200 land miles from the small market town of Colossae, about as far as it takes to drive from here to Dallas, Texas. And although Paul has never met these Christians in Colossae in person, he feels deeply connected to them. In fact, on his missionary journey in and around Ephesus, where he spent much time, he shared the gospel to that region, and that region included both Jews and Greeks. And apparently, the church in Colossae was formed out of that movement, that missionary movement that Paul led. And then, according to my ESV Reformation Study Bible, some five to seven years later, the founder of the Colossian Church joined Paul in prison at Rome to tell the apostle of a strange teaching that was threatening the health of his home church. And so in our passage today, we're going to learn a little bit more about Paul's personal investment in this ministry work. And although he sits in modern-day Italy and is writing to these first readers hundreds of miles away in Colossae in modern-day Turkey, he is thinking of these Christians there and directs his writing to them. So let's take a moment and ask the Lord for his help this morning. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would give me the words to speak, um, that they would be words of you, that they would align with your heartbeat for this people that are gathered here this morning. And I pray for everyone gathered here that you would give us hearts to receive, that this would be a powerful word that would do a work in our soul. In your name, amen. So our first of two points is this. Point one, God's mystery is revealed. Colossians 1, 24 through 29. I would love for you to open your Bibles if you have not already or if you want to open your phone to Colossians 1, starting at 24, and we'll go verse by verse this morning. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is, the church. It's clear what he means, what Paul means by suffering, right? No doubt he is talking about what he's currently suffering. There have been some serious restrictions on his liberties. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll find that around this same time, Paul actually issued an appeal about his rights as a Roman citizenship all the way up to an appeal to Caesar. But, But note that he makes no such claim here. 
He could spend time addressing a laundry list of wrongs against him, of of where his liberties have been restrained. But instead, he says something quite profound. I rejoice in my sufferings. What kind of sufferings have you experienced in your own seasons of life? Do you grieve the loss of a child? Or do you long for a relationship that just hasn't come? Or is family life just so very different than what you had longed for it to be and hoped that it would be? Or are you hurting because of broken trust in a relationship or broken friendship? Many of these kinds of sufferings are not even the result of our own actions or words or behavior, but nonetheless we suffer under the weight of a fallen world. And here Paul says he rejoices in his sufferings. You know, most of us tend to try to avoid such suffering, or, or we just try to grin and bear it. So we should ask, what, what gives someone that deep sense of joy in the midst of such trials? And, and, and here's the thing. Paul is not. What is Paul not doing? Paul is not speaking positive words to himself to attempt to change his reality. He's, he's not turning on the TV every night to distract perhaps from what he's experiencing in his life. He's not escaping this. And notice that he's also not waiting for his joy to come once his circumstances change. And in fact, he's, he's not even experiencing joy alongside his suffering. He says that he's experiencing joy in his sufferings. There's no doubt where Paul is looking for the source of this kind of joy. He's looking to Jesus. This particular suffering that Paul is experiencing is actually because he is following Jesus. He had become rooted and grounded in his faith in Jesus ever since he encountered Jesus on that fateful day. And now he proclaims the gospel of Jesus from city to city. And for this, he now sits in chains. Something, he says, that is for your sake. I'll pick up this idea for your sake in a few moments. But for now, let me address what I think could be to us a very odd description by Paul. In the second part of verse 24, Paul writes, In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. Well, what is he not saying? Let's start there. He is certainly not saying that Christ's afflictions lack anything, any merit that would fully reconcile us to God. How can I say that? Let's do a little background, right? So look at verses 19 through 22 of chapter 1, right? Starting at 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Stop. Right? For in him and through him and to him, reconciled to God through Jesus. Paul is not modifying that statement whatsoever. But here in verse 24, Paul is making a connection between Christ's suffering and his own suffering. Between Christ's suffering and the suffering of every believer in the path of obedience leading to the final day. What is that connection? Well, let's continue to study the context. This is how we we can discern 
how to rightly understand scripture, right? Let's look at the context here, continuing in verses 22 through 24, because I think it makes a lot more sense when you actually read it in context. Look at verses 22 and following. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh, this is Christ, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless, above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, in my flesh. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So do you see the connection? Paul didn't misspeak as he considers the full salvific power of the gospel, of Christ's reconciling work, he reflects on how our ongoing sanctification is going to be fulfilled. So he says that his suffering is for you. It's for your sake. It's for the church. For the Colossian church nearly 2,000 years ago and for this church today. Paul continues in verse 25. Look there. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul's suffering, his service is for us. His gospel proclamation brought the word of God to the Gentiles, to those who are not ethnically Jewish. I am not ethnically Jewish. So this ministry is significant. Paul is following a suffering servant, the suffering savior. Consider Philippians 3, which David shared with us earlier this morning. I didn't plan that, by the way. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Continuing down to verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You know, Paul's apostolic ministry was, was a serious undertaking, something that required sacrificing everything for this one cause, something that required great stewardship, holding this precious treasure of God's word with the responsibility to preach the word and make the word of God fully known. Paul understood that a life of following Jesus would necessarily include suffering. A life of sharing in Christ's suffering, becoming like him in his suffering and in his death. And that's not just true of Paul, the apostle. It's not, it's not true of Paul as super Christian or as missionary. That's true of every Christian. Paul wrote to Timothy that indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. And Jesus himself taught that you will have suffering in this world, but be courageous I have overcome the world. Paul counted the cost, but also clearly understood that suffering leads to our sanctification. And so he says in verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. His suffering is Christ's suffering, something the body of Christ will endure until that final day. And his suffering is accomplishing something. His life, his teaching, and his suffering all point to something that we see here in verse 26. Look there. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. 
Now we get to it, the mystery. This is the key point of this first point, that Paul infers that there's been this great mystery all along that's been hidden for ages. Think hundreds of years and thousands of years, generation after generation. Just like the one ring was lost for such a great time and there were rumors and hearsay about it, but one day it was discovered, one day the mystery was revealed, so also this mystery has been revealed. Now, to the Jews, such a mystery could perhaps be perceived as the promised seed from Abraham in Genesis twenty two eighteen, and in your offspring shall all the nations be blessed, right? So who, who is that one that will be the offspring? This was a mystery for thousands of years, yes. But remember that Paul's not speaking to a Jewish audience, not primarily. He's writing to a church that is made up of Gentiles, And my study Bible was helpful in this. It clarifies that God's saving purpose for Gentiles was largely hidden prior to the coming of Christ. Previous generations were allowed to walk in their ways. The Old Testament revealed in shadows, signs, and and hints of what God would do. And the commentary continues that in contemporary pagan religion at that time, the mysteries were, were secret insights given to a select initiated few And now with some irony, Paul uses this term for the revelation of God that has been available freely to all the nations. It's amazing. So what is the mystery once hidden and now revealed? Well, it's found right there in verse 27. Let's see. To them, to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is a glorious mystery, a profound mystery, worthy of our thoughtful, joyful meditation, right? The mystery is Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the agent of creation, the Word. But not just these things, the Word made flesh, who made his dwelling among us, the man from Nazareth, Named Jesus, the teacher, the healer, the miracle worker, the servant, the innocent man crucified on a cross. The mystery is revealed in Christ. And what's this beautiful phrase that that Paul uses? Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not just for Jews or for Gentiles, but it's, but it's, but it's for all of us. And, and it's not just for first century believers. It's for 21st century believers. It's Christ in you. And in most of Paul's writings, he refers to those who are in Christ. But here he uses the phrase Christ in you. And while this essentially amounts to the same meaning, consider the nuance. Christ in you. Christ in us. The New Testament is filled with these descriptions of our unity with Christ, as the following examples reveal. In John, Jesus promises, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. God will take up residence in us, Jesus says. And in Ephesians, Jesus or Paul describes how this is happening by saying that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. How does this happen? Through faith. And in Hebrews, the author articulates that Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, 
And then he adds, whose house we are. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul pauses to ask us, do you not know that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? Do you see what a glorious thing this is? That it's not merely that salvation is for all who believe. It's that the salvation that we experience comes with an intimate relationship with God. We are reconciled. Now, we should, we should certainly guard against and fight spiritual apathy or arrogance that would cause us to grow tired of talking about what we've been saved from. We have been saved from so very much. But we also must not miss the glory of what we've been saved to. What we've been saved to, Christ in us. Paul refers to this truth as God making known to us the riches of his glory. So whatever Paul once counted gain, he counts as loss in order to receive and experience and live in the good of these riches. Perhaps you're familiar with the New City Catechism, a short book that lays out 52 questions and answers related to our convictions as Christians from the Bible. The first question and answer are helpful here and worthy of our consideration. Question one, what is our only hope in life and death? Answer, that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. To the church in Colossae who faced various kinds of false teaching, Paul reminds them of where their hope can fully rest on, on this mystery revealed on Christ, the hope of glory. That is the hope of God and for God and in God. There is no other hope. Paul makes this very clear in the following verse. Look there in verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. On Sundays, what is the message that we proclaim as we sing worship songs? What is, the, what is the message that we proclaim through prayer? What is the message that you hear proclaimed from a sermon? What is the message that, that we proclaim in our conversations about last week and about our hopes and dreams for the future? What is it that we proclaim? We proclaim Christ. We proclaim Christ and no other. We proclaim Christ today and tomorrow and next week and for the rest of our lives. What is the message we proclaim? Him we proclaim. Christ above all. And why such an emphasis on this message? This is, after all, the key theme of the book of Colossians. Because as in the day that this letter was written, so in our day... Cultural messages compete for our attention, our affection, and our allegiance. From your least favorite politician, I'm sure you have one, to your favorite TV show, to your upgraded phone, to your coffee preferences, to your children's success in school or in sports, to your financial position in this uncertain economy, you will find that the things that you most closely identify with will become banners over your life. They proclaim a message. And you can't help it. It shows up in what you post online. 
It shows up in what you wear, in what you talk about, in what you spend your money on, in what you spend your time on. So ask yourself, what are some of the banner messages over your life? Paul tells us why the banner above all banners over his life is Christ. He says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's apostolic and shepherding ministry here is to teach and to admonish in all wisdom for a specific purpose. What is that purpose? Why did he write this? To present everyone mature in Christ. Everyone he comes into contact with. Everyone who would hear his teaching or read his letter or hear his letter read aloud. Everyone to whom it would be preached. Do you realize that this is why God inspired this passage of scripture and why you are providentially here this morning? To hear the word preached. I do not think it is presumptuous for me to say with great conviction that this is God's goal for you today, that you would grow into maturity in Christ. Paul describes how he has given his all for this very purpose in verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul works hard. Pastors and preachers and counselors and Bible teachers work hard. As you disciple your children or evangelize to a neighbor or a coworker or a classmate, or as you help your friends follow Jesus, you can feel it, can't you? It's not easy. It's hard work. There there is toil in the struggle. There's an earnest to this ministry work that needs to be completed, but it is a worthy endeavor It's a worthy way to spend your life, to invest your life, to proclaim Christ above all. And how can we press on through such seasons of difficulty when we're asking those questions? How do we not grow so weak that we choose to give up? Well, it's right there in verse 29. By God's grace, we've been given the Spirit of Christ. He is the one who works in us. In Paul's words... His ministry is fueled by something. His energy that he powerfully works within me. No, not Paul's energy that Paul powerfully works within him, but Christ's energy that Christ powerfully works within him and works within each of us as believers. So just think about that. If you're a believer, the power of Christ, the power of God dwells in you to energize you, to help you, to equip you. So where do you feel weak? And tired in the good work that God has prepared for you? Where do you feel like you lack vision or direction or motivation? Where do you feel overwhelmed? Or where do you feel like you are carrying a lot of emotional baggage from the journey? Paul would say to you, do not grow weary. Know that your struggle of faith is Christ's struggle for you. He is with you. He is for you. He is faithfully providing his energy and powerfully working it in you. He will sustain you. So God's mystery is revealed and God's mystery now has become Paul's ministry. 
And this leads Paul to now consider his own efforts and his aim in the next five verses, which will lead us into the second of our two points this morning. Point number two, our confidence is Christ. Colossians 2, 1 through 5. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, and of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Paul's concern is specifically for these Christians in Colossae and those at a sister church called Laodicea, the district capital about 10 miles from Colossae. Churches had formed in both of these towns, but neither church, as I previously mentioned, was planted by Paul. In in all likelihood, converts from Paul's mission work in Ephesus led to these churches being planted. And we know who founded the Colossian church. That was Epaphras. That was the man who came and spoke to Paul about this strange teaching. And as Paul reflects on his own ministry, he describes how great of a struggle he's had specifically for the Colossians and for the Laodiceans. You know, if Paul had texting or social media in the first century, perhaps he would have sent a message that said, the struggle is real. But Paul carries a, a special burden for these, un, for these believers. Unlike Christians in, in perhaps Ephesus or Corinth or Thessalonica, who spent time with Paul, receiving teaching from Paul and encouragement, and no doubt built some, some trusting friendships there, these believers don't know Paul. And his burden is for those who have not seen him face to face. And, and I would suggest that that extends to us too, right? We've not seen Paul face to face. We don't know Paul. But by the inspiration of God's spirit, these words have been preserved for us so that Paul can instruct us and admonish us and encourage us. And why is he doing all this? Why does he have such a struggle for these believers on their behalf? What is Paul contending for? Well, in verse 2, it says that their hearts, your hearts, may be encouraged, being knit together in love. If I, if I could take away, you know, kind of a, a goal that I have for this sermon this morning, it's that your hearts would be encouraged. Because that's what Paul's heart is for his readers. You know, this key idea is that our hearts may have courage. You know, the English word encourage you know, if you get into the, into the root words, it's really simple, right? It's to bring courage or to invest courage or to add courage or to strengthen courage in someone. So Paul's admission, admonition is meant to bring courage to our heart, that our hearts would be knit together in love. And in our first 21st century American context, we, we tend to think of the heart primarily as the control center for our emotions, right? But in, but in biblical times, the heart was the center of our, our personality, right? It was the source of our willing and our thinking and our feeling. Douglas Moo adds that this phrase, encouraged in heart, is therefore a way of referring to an encouragement that touches the deepest part of our being and that affects every aspect of our person's that that courage would be dug deep down 
God is after something with this message. He wants us to be comforted by this genuine, deep, enduring courage and the heartfelt sense of belonging and unity in the body of Christ. So let me get real. Let me get personal. Do you feel that? Is that your experience? If I were to hand out a survey and ask if that is true of you, some of you would respond yes, emphatically yes. That is true of me. That's been my experience and I'm grateful for it. Praise the Lord. But, but others would say that's not your experience. Maybe you struggle with doubts about faith or fractures in church relationships, but you couldn't say that you're there right now. And Paul's burden is for both groups, but I think especially for the latter. So if that's you, lean in and be encouraged. He longs for you, verse 2, to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding and of the knowledge of God's mystery. By show of hands, how many of you guys enjoy learning in a classroom environment? Raise your hands. How many of you guys would prefer not so much that? There's other methods. There's other creative ways of learning. Raise your hands. Yeah. Okay. So a bit of a mix. So I, I had this thought last night. I wondered what kind of classes. I'm, I'm more on the, the first half. I, I enjoy classroom learning. But I wonder what kind of classes are taught um, about about this sort of thing, right? And so I, I looked up a popular ACC school and found this running list. Introduction to Religious Studies, Religions of the Ancient World, Religions and Society, Philosophy of Religion, and the list goes on and on and on. So what's my point? You could attend all of those classes. You could get straight A's in those classes, but you wouldn't learn, you wouldn't receive, you wouldn't get deep down inside what Paul describes here, full assurance of understanding and of the knowledge of God's mystery. That's not found in a classroom. That's not found out in nature either. That's, that's found, full assurance, as one commentary puts it, the full wealth of conviction which comes with understanding is found in Jesus as revealed to us in God's word. So, so if he left any doubt at the end of chapter one, Paul doubles down with great clarity about God's mystery. Chapter two, verse two, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So where do we discover these riches of full assurance so that we can be confident in our knowledge and understanding. It's not in the classroom. We experience these riches in personally embracing the revelation of God in Christ. The mystery, which is Christ. In Christ, God has revealed all that we need for complete confidence in him. Douglas Moo continues with this thought, talking about Paul's driving concern here. He says that Christ is, is the one in whom is found all that one needs in order to understand spiritual reality and to live a life pleasing to God. You, you can't find that anywhere else. You can search the world over and you will not find that. And so if you're here this morning and you have yet to follow Jesus, pause, if that's you. Allow me to encourage you. The person of Jesus the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is for you. When Christians talk about Christ, 
It's not just a religious entity or religious being. We're talking about the lover of our soul. When we see Jesus, we see the one who loved us when we were unlovable, who sacrificed everything to come and save us, to reconcile us to God, to give us a hope and a future. Jesus is our only hope in life and in death. He is the one to whom we belong. And if you're here this morning and you feel like you're struggling with your faith, unsteady, unsure, maybe you don't know what you believe or, or why you believe what you believe, well, bring your questions to Christian community, yes. Study God's word for answers, yes. And let me give you something to consider as you do that. It's something a friend shared with me just this past Friday that I found quite profound from author Dane Ortland. Here it is. Your growth in Christ will go no further than your settledness way deep down in your heart that God loves you. That's simple, but that is profound. And in Christ, God has proven that he loves you. In this, in Christ, are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes a parallel passage to the church in Corinth that I think further highlights the treasure that is Christ. Let me read a few verses. For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ, Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In Paul's day, the culture at large placed a really high value on the, persu the persuasive speech of orators, of teachers who would lead you to some kind of special wisdom. But Paul warns the Colossians, and he warns us that they cannot, we must not be deceived or look somewhere else for this kind of knowledge and wisdom. All of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him. Therefore, we must be on guard, lest we forget the all-sufficiency of Christ. Paul says in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. It seems as though there were countless false teachings that had cropped up during this time and have cropped up over the years to shake the faith of Christians through the ages that have threatened to uproot us. And as individuals and as a corporate body, we must take this kind of warning very seriously. So let's think about a few categories that we should be on guard against. Some of us, I'll raise my hand for this one, may tend toward legalism. Believing that we must add to the work of Christ in order for God to be happy with us. Some of us may be blinded by unrepentant sin in your life, in my life. Feeling as though God just doesn't care if we keep on sinning. Jesus covered that. We're good. So we justify ourselves instead of confessing our sin. Some of us 
come across powerful ideals like the prosperity gospel or the social gospel and think this is the one true gospel. Some of us find ourselves up against persuasive arguments for even walking away from the church due to past failures or present failures. The remedy here is not to exhaustively study all of these alternatives and more, but to study what is true. Perhaps you've heard the illustration about identifying false currency. As the story goes, the American Banking Association had a special training at one time to help tellers detect what bills were counterfeits. And instead of inspecting counterfeit bills, they handled only authentic currency hour after hour, day after day, so that they were so familiar with what was authentic, what was true, that they could spot anything that was false. And I think there's a principle therein for us. Notice that Paul does not even articulate clearly what exactly this teaching entailed. He doesn't give a bullet point by bullet point debate style negation of each of of those beliefs. Instead, he focuses the believer's spiritual eyes on Jesus. It's by looking at Jesus that we receive that kind of wisdom and knowledge that he's talking about. So consider how Paul contrasts the wisdom of the world to the wisdom that we proclaim. This is continuing in his parallel passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, this is to the church in Corinth, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and fear and trembling. Can anyone relate to that? My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may be based not on human wisdom, but on God's power. God's wisdom is such a stark contrast to the wisdom of the world. And Paul concludes our section here in Colossians 2 with verse 5. Look there. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. You know, Paul's words are not simply a, my thoughts and prayers are with you. People say that all the time. What does that mean? (laughs) No, in Douglas Moo's words, this involves a profound sense of corporate identity. Paul identifies with these believers. A corporate identity of belonging to the body of Christ. Paul is a part of the body. And the Colossian Christians are a part of the body. And we are a part of that body. The Holy Spirit indwells Paul in Rome, and he indwells these Christians in Colossae, and therefore Paul can say, I am with you in spirit. And he's rejoicing again. (laughs) Just as he opened our passage today, rejoicing in suffering, so also he's rejoicing here. He's rejoicing in in their discipline and in their firmness in Christ. So as we come to the end of this section, ask yourself, Do you share Paul's sense of corporate identity, identifying with with the body of Christ, belonging to the body of Christ? If you are in Christ, you are a member of the body, and there are many members. 
when they rejoice, do you rejoice? When they weep, do you weep? Do you rejoice when you see other believers in your church growing in spiritual disciplines and growing in their conviction and their confidence in Christ? Let me ask you, do you feel firm in your faith? And if you do, why do you feel firm? What led to that? Consider telling somebody today about your testimony of how your confidence was established in Christ. But maybe you don't feel confident. So if that's you, if you don't feel firm in your faith, ask yourself, what do you think is missing? And consider telling somebody today about these struggles that you have. I struggle to have confidence in Christ. Is it all real? And by looking to Christ, may you experience that settledness way deep down that God loves you. And finally, if you're a believer this morning, ask yourself, how can I help someone else grow in their confidence in Christ this week? As I've learned and we've learned this morning, we all have need and we all have an exhortation to love one another. So let's do that well. I love stories like the Lord of the Rings um, that so vividly capture themes that resonate with us as embodied souls. There's something rich about friendship and sacrifice, hope and failure, courage and the will to press on in the midst of every challenge. In Christ, a mystery has been revealed. A treasure has been discovered. May we have the courage to serve the hero of the story, Christ, who's given everything for us. May we endure to that final day, persevere and press on. And let us remember in Christ, God has revealed all we need for complete confidence in him. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that you have preserved your word over the ages. I thank you for the gift of the printed word, that we can have access to it. I thank you that we can have it in our own language. I thank you that we can have the liberty to, to gather here and to hear your word preached. And God, I pray that you would help this to settle deep down in our souls. God, you have revealed a great glory in Christ, the greatest of all glories. You have revealed yourself. And God, we, we confess that we often fail to see that glory and perceive that glory and live in the good of that glory and to live with, with great confidence in Christ. But we thank you that even in that, in Christ, you've covered that for us, Lord Jesus. And so we thank you, Lord, and we thank you that you are the one that continues to, to lead us and guide us because you are the risen Christ. And God, I pray that you would help us to grow in confidence and to help others treasure Christ and to come to that same confidence rooted and grounded deep down because we know you love us. Help us to proclaim Christ above all. In your name, amen.